Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain. Maz, I think that people who listen to this show, Intercepted, are following very, very closely uh, the state of siege right now that's happening in Gaza, uh, with uh, Israeli officials basically saying that they are locking the entire place down and that they're implementing scorched earth bombing. Um, There's talk of a full-scale ground invasion and reservists are being called up, and we're already seeing uh, in the aftermath of of the heavy uh, civilian death toll um, among Israelis, uh, that was a result of Hamas's blitzkrieg attacks against uh, Israel over the weekend. We're now seeing skyrocketing numbers of Palestinian civilian deaths as a result of the Israeli military campaign. And we're going to be talking to the political analyst Marwan Bashara in a moment. But Maz, uh, you you wrote a really good piece for The Intercept um, this week called Biden Doubled Down on the Abraham Accords to Devastating Consequences. Subtitle of it is the Biden administration's policy of ignoring conditions in Gaza contributed to this weekend's explosion of violence. Talk about that piece, Maz, and, and, and what you were writing about. Sure. I think essentially the Biden administration's Middle East policy has been to attempt to ignore the Palestinians and to proceed with a Jared Kushner, Donald Trump approach of building arms deals and diplomatic agreements between Israel and countries with which it doesn't have any direct conflict, like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, the United Arab Emirates. And this very thorny, difficult issue of diplomacy between these two countries with a great history of enmity and hatred and violence between them, two peoples, Israelis and Palestinians, to sidestep that issue and get these flashy diplomatic wins, mostly for domestic consumption, in lieu of that. And I think we see now that was a very short-sighted, immature strategy, really a simulation or simulacrum of what real diplomacy should be like, which is about making tough deals between enemies and putting conflicts to an end. And that policy of ignoring the Palestinians and ignoring conditions in Gaza, which were reaching such a horrifying breaking point in the recent years, uh, has really proven its downfall at this moment. And very, very tellingly, a few weeks ago, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor to the White House, he was saying that the Middle East is more peaceful than it's been in many, many years, uh, just before this catastrophe. So you can imagine the level of hubris and the short-sightedness that was prevailing within the administration. And I'll say also that it was very horrifying to see this attack, what happened in uh, from Hamas in southern Israel against these communities. But also it's very important to know that this was not an outburst of violence in a condition of peace before there were several massacres and mass killings that took place by Israel in Gaza during this time period, years leading up to this, including peaceful marches that took place to the separation barrier that contains this territory, which many, many Palestinians were shot and killed. And the response of the international community was quite muted. 
So what you see is really the ignoring of a festering, horrifying situation there, which is now broken out of its containment. And the consequences now we'll see playing out in the weeks, months to come. It could get very, very bad, in fact. Yeah. And you know, Maz, I mean, it's, it's, and we'll talk about this later, but you know, all Palestinians that are ever allowed to be interviewed about this, the first thing they need to do uh, as a requirement is to condemn Hamas. And, and, and I don't remember hearing um, Israelis or Israeli civilians who are uh, dealing with horrifying deaths of civilians being meted out against them, having like the first question be asked, are you going to condemn Benjamin Netanyahu's state of siege against the civilian population of Gaza? Like, I, I think this is an extremely important point for us to understand. Obviously, yes, people have a right to say, do you condemn the murder of women, children, regardless of their race or their religion or which side they're on? Obvious, that, that's, that's like should go even without saying but that that's that standard is not applied to the Palestinians. There there is a completely different set of standards. And I also, you know, while I I think it's utterly grotesque to be murdering civilians, I I also want to know for people who are demanding that all Palestinians have some political position on Hamas, what do they want Palestinians to do? Because Palestinians have tried nonviolent marches. Palestinians have tried appealing to the international community. Like, what is the solution that that those who who want to condemn all Palestinians to just collective uh, lifelong imprisonment? What what is the solution? What what is an appropriate means to resist these conditions? This isn't an endorsement of Hamas. This is just a question I think that that legitimately should be asked to anyone who supports Israel's policy against the Palestinians. What is a legitimate way for the Palestinians to respond or to fight back against the collective punishment that they are forced to live under for decades, for entire lifetimes? You know, it's interesting, uh, this attack which took place by Hamas, it was very terrible for many, many reasons and the impact on civilians, of course, as well too. But I'm not sure that if they'd limited their attack to Israeli military and police, that the response would have been much different. I think that the same uh, military political response would have prevailed. And as horrible as it is on its own terms, I'm not sure if it would have made a difference because I don't think that there is any form of resistance which is viewed as legitimate uh, to these conditions. If nonviolent resistance was viewed as not legitimate, people were shot at the border it was considered defensible and normal. Uh, political attempts in international fora to raise action against Israel also deemed not legitimate. So I think that they were placed in a position where it's almost a nihilistic position, where nothing was left. Uh, there's no action they could take to augment their actions, which would win more favor from the international community. And you put them in a position where they lashed out, and the lashing out and the actual aspect of it, or the way it looked and the way it manifested itself was horrible. But you know, this was a time bomb. It was a time bomb which was going to explode. It was very, very obvious. Um, there were many warnings from many parties, Palestinians, Israelis, others in the region is going to happen. And now it's exploded. And now we can only see where it's going to lead. Yeah, well, for, for more on this situation, we are joined now by Marwan Bashara. He's the senior political analyst at Al Jazeera. He's author of several books about global affairs and war. He also happens to be a Palestinian who was born in Israel. Uh, Marwan Bashara, thank you very much for being with us here on Intercepted. Thank you for having me. 
Marwan, you've you've written a couple of of really really prescient pieces uh, this week uh, for Al Jazeera, and since the attack by Hamas began and the siege of Gaza, and we'll get into some of what you're writing about, um, including if this is an effort to draw the United States uh, into a wider war uh, with Iran. But I, I want to just start with your analysis of what is happening right now in Gaza. In in many ways, this was predictable. You know that Netanyahu is going to go for scorched earth. You have the defense minister saying that the Israel is now fighting human animals in Gaza. Um, it's just been massive bombardment. But talk about what is happening right now, your understanding inside Gaza. I hate to say it, but it is really more of the same, uh, but on a much larger scale. So for the past uh, 15 years, as the senior political analyst at Al Jazeera, I had to cover basically four wars, right? Uh, four Israeli wars in or on Gaza. And I think we're seeing the same pattern repeat itself again and again. And I think uh, both sides seem to be stuck um, in this cycle of uh, so-called uh, you know, actions and retaliation. And clearly there is a root cause for all of this. Uh, and clearly everyone knows what it is, including, to my mind, the Israelis. There is an occupation and there's a siege. The siege of Gaza and the occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem uh, are the root causes for all of this. Uh, it's almost become a cliche uh, to repeat it again and again. But the problem with cliches are that they tend to uh, sort of reduce uh, an entire human experience in, in a word or two. And being repeated becomes meaningless. And I think one has to be really close to the situation there, to the people uh, in Gaza and in the West Bank, to understand the difficulty of living under occupation. I could say it in, in a word or two, again, in terms of cliche, but it is torturous. It's torture. There is the psychological and mental torture, which is racism. And racism has been with us now since before the state of Israel, since Zionism first made its first colonial appearance in Palestine. And then there is uh, the physical torture, violence. And I think these two factors, the psychological, mental torture and the physical torture of Palestinians that have been going on for decades now, and the people in Gaza felt it more than others because of the occupations, the siege, the overpopulation of the area, uh, having 2.2 million people in this open prison. I hate to say it, uh, call it a refugee concentration camp, but it's really become that way, uh, right? Uh, and the fact uh, that, uh, that for the past 17 years, there's been such a, uh, a tightened siege uh, of the Strip, have basically uh, radicalized uh, the population there and certainly radicalized the Palestinian factions there. And as we all know, it's been uh, sort of ruled by the Islamist movement Hamas in conjunction with some of the you know, smaller groups like the Jihad al-Islami and so on and so forth. And these groups have in so many ways de facto ruled uh, the Strip since 2005 and they have been capable of uh, you know, managing life, if you will, uh, under under siege. But at the same time, uh, they're not exactly accepting it as de facto, as apparently the Israelis have. They thought that they could just lock the Palestinians in, throw the keys, and start talking to the Saudis and the Emiratis. 
And I think a lot of it, uh, just in terms of like the immediate timing, was triggered for many Palestinians, because that's what I've been seeing or hearing from them the past number of days, is that it seems that Netanyahu's speech at the United Nations have shocked so many when in his usual smug and boastful bravado, you know, brought up his fancy map uh, to the UN podium and start speaking about uh, New Middle East, you know, from Saudi Arabia into Morocco, centered around Israel, and completely omitting the Palestinians as if they were invisible people. Well, I think the last weekend, the Palestinians have finally once again, made themselves visible. Can you talk a bit about what some of the motivations would be of this particular offensive? Because obviously between Hamas and Israel, the Israeli military, there's a huge uh, gap in the level of force they can bring to bear. And many have said that, well, this assault will inevitably invite a far greater uh, counter-assault. And even the manner in which it was carried out seemed to entail some level of provocation in terms of the targeting of the kibbutzes and so forth. Can you talk a bit about why they may have uh, carried out this assault now and why it took the shape that it did? In terms of immediate causes, I can think of three. One is that uh, in recent years, the repression of the new sort of more fanatical, more fascist Israeli government has taken a whole new shape in the occupied territories in terms of increasing the illegal settlements, uh, increasing repression, increasing night raids against Palestinians, increasing the reconsecration of Palestinian uh, religious uh, sites, that uh, it really angered Palestinians and uh, pushed uh, Palestinian groups like Hamas or forced it to act uh, in response to the uh, sort of Israeli violations. So in so many ways, the, uh, the Hamas attack is in response to the last few years of increased repression uh, by the fanatical uh, government in Israel. Two, I think it was uh, also in a way uh, to make the Palestinians visible as recent uh, American slash Israeli diplomacy trying to bring the Arabs into the fold with Israel, basically having Arab world recognize and normalize Israel's apartheid regime uh, with the blessing support of the United States, making the Palestinians totally invisible. I think that certainly wasn't to the you know liking uh, of the Palestinians and their and their leaders, and hence this operation was meant to remind the world once again. By the way, not not too dissimilar from the PLO's actions in the 1970s to remind the world that there is a Palestinian question, a Palestinian cause, a Palestinian refugee issue, and so on and so forth, by carrying also at the time what was termed terrorist attacks and so on and so forth. And third, I think uh, there is an issue of uh, prisoners. There are thousands of political uh, prisoners in Israeli prisons, uh, many of them under administrative detention, meaning they did not even go through uh, the court system. And uh, over the past 50 plus years, uh, some million Palestinians have gone through the Israel prison system. So you can imagine that this is a major issue for Palestinians and their leaders. And speaking of leaders, the leader of Hamas in Gaza, Yahya Sanwar, spent 22 years in Israeli prisons, and he was supposed to spend the rest of his life under life sentences in Israeli prisons if it wasn't for 
the uh, prisoners exchange, I think it was back in 2011, uh, when Israel released over a thousand Palestinian prisoners in return for the release of Gilad Shalit, the Israeli soldier that was held in Gaza. So at the time, Israel released more than a thousand in return for one. Now they have more than a hundred captives, and they certainly want to exchange them for uh, you know thousands of Palestinian political prisoners. That's on the immediate. But I, but to your point about why would they do it, knowing that the Israelis are going to definitely react the way they're going to do, is basically demolishing Gaza. I think from three hundred years of history, or at least the last hundred years of history of asymmetrical warfare. The logic of the smaller, weaker party has always been to provoke the stronger party in order to overreact against the population of the weaker party, hence creating more hatred, more hostility by the weaker party around their leaders. And I think Hamas understood. And Hamas wasn't exactly very popular in Gaza the last several years. And, and certainly now, with Gazans being busy you know, look, you know, running for their lives, I think it was important for you know in terms of this logic to take its you know to take its way as it were, whereby uh, Hamas provokes in a very bloody, gruesome way uh, in southern Israel. Israel expectedly, and I would say stupidly, uh, you know, falls into the trap and overreacts, hence creating more and more hostilities among the Palestinians. And just one last comment on that. Uh, recently, I was reading uh, Ami Ayalon, the former head of the Shabak in Israel, Friendly Fire, and I don't mean to give it any publicity. He was uh, you know, accused of war crimes. But in his book and in his testimony, along with five other uh, former heads of intelligence services in Israel, in The Gatekeepers, that famous documentary, they all seem to agree that Israel's excessive use of force is the main cause for extremism among the Palestinians. Israel always overreacts, overretaliates, and certainly uses excessive force against the Palestinians, and that creates more hostility on the part of the Palestinians at large. You know, Marwan, I've I've watched um, uh, numerous interviews where Palestinians, including um, Palestinians who are living in Gaza, have been interviewed on BBC or other major news networks. And they're often interviewed um, uh, either right after or right before um, an Israeli official, including Israeli officials who are saying, we're going to cut off the all electricity, all water. Um, you know, it's it's going to be uh, scorched earth, essentially saying uh, things that uh, very easily would be part and parcel of a Hague prosecution if uttered by um leaders of other nation states that are allowed to be prosecuted at the International Criminal Court. And I've, I've thought a lot about this, and I thought about this the last time Israel laid siege to Gaza, the, the sickness of forcing every Palestinian that you speak to about their life experience to have a political commentary or a moral condemnation of Hamas. I wouldn't have an objection to that if there was consistency where Israeli guests were confronted with the horrifying war crimes that are being committed by their their government. I think all of us, any human being who hears the stories or sees the footage of what was done to Israeli civilians is horrified on a visceral level. But if you don't have a history of being horrified on a visceral level when you see Palestinian children slaughtered on the beach, 
when you see whole families wiped out in uh, in drone strikes, when you see entire residential buildings blown apart, then any demand that a Palestinian from Gaza have a political position about Hamas or to say something about what happened at the, the rave music festival in a desert that is situated uh, a stone's throw away from an open-air prison camp, it's it's bankrupt. It's 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 utterly morally bankrupt to say to someone who is a victim of collective punishment for their entire young life, as the first question, what do you say about Hamas? And 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 this I think cuts to the heart of why the media discourse is so utterly uh, vapid around Palestine, is because Palestinians uh, there is always a demand that they have a big moral condemnation of any violence that is coming from their side when the opposite is never true. And and I think that uh, this situation now is bringing to a head that reality. You cannot talk about what Hamas has done. And I'm, I, I am utterly opposed to the killing of civilians by any side. I don't celebrate the murder of civilians. But to discuss that and pretend like that is the is the entry pass to have anything else to say about your life experience which has been entirely lived in an open air prison where now you're being called a human animal by the leader of a vastly superior nuclear armed nation the the discourse marwan that we're watching and the demands made of palestinians when they are given that rare opportunity to actually speak from their state of siege in gaza yes uh Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because I live uh, a lot, uh, a big part of the year in Western capitals between Europe and the United States, I also travel around the world. I, I sense that uh, your sense of indignation, of course, mostly uh, is about uh, Western hypocrisy. Because when you travel throughout the world, you'll notice that actually in different countries, uh, it's a whole other ballgame. There's a certain Western centric hypocrisy about this whole issue. Right? And of course, the Western media leads. And in so many ways, then it kind of sets a tone of some sort. But I think more and more Western media, like Western leaders, are becoming more and more isolated in the world because of their hypocrisy and double standard. I saw last Sunday uh, on one of the talk shows uh, in the United States, they finally invited a Palestinian. Of course, you would invite a Palestinian only because the first question you want to ask them or her, do you condemn Hamas? Right? I mean, you don't invite the Palestinians when Palestinians are getting screwed and bombarded, whatever. You invite a Palestinian after Hamas or the Palestinians have carried some gruesome attack, and then the first thing you ask is, do you condemn? Now, what I found interesting when I was watching that segment uh, on the American network is that I don't recall, as someone who's covered uh, international relations for media and in academia, ever, ever in my life, a journalist coming up to anyone from Russia and Ukraine to France and Algeria to uh, America and Vietnam and tell an indigenous person, do you condemn? I've never seen it. I've never seen media approach anyone in the West or in the, in the, in the developing world as well, or in the Middle East, not even, not even in Iraq, by the way, not even in Iraq, not even in Afghanistan. Right? I haven't seen an American journalist coming to whoever and said, do you, do you condemn the Taliban? 
do you condemn, uh, I don't know what, the Shiite uh, death squads in Iraq? I haven't seen that. But on the question of Palestine, something completely flips all the time. Now, I think uh, a lot of it, uh, you know, could be explained in, in different ways. Uh, one is that uh, it you tend to see that the media follows in some paradoxical way government sort of broad line on the question of Israel-Palestine. Here in France or in Germany or in, uh, in, in the UK, the way you see them now, you know, everyone's kind of dripping themselves with the Israeli flag from the Eiffel Tower to God, God knows what. You get the sense that the government kind of, from the government trickles down this idea that we now we're going to stand with Israel's right to defend itself. And no one asks themselves, what about the Palestinians? Do they have the right to defend themselves? Because 50, 50 years of occupation, it's not just a word, it's not sort of cliches. Occupation is a system of violence. That's what occupation is. It's a system of violence. Except it's not dramatic that can be captured on TV cameras every day and every other day, you know, of people dying, uh, you know, in the desert. It's just an ongoing daily routine of people to live in a system of violence. That's not captured by cameras. And that's not recognized necessarily. In fact, it, many of those Western outlets and governments would like to forget it altogether. And they try to do that and, and, unless and until the Palestinians have reminded them of their existence. And third quick point on that is that I feel American media in general is sending less and less people out to the world to govern. I remember as soon as they left you know, I mean, as soon as uh, most of the American soldiers left Iraq, the American media left the next day. Now, you, don't, you hardly find an, an, you know, an, an American television uh, correspondent, for example, in like Iraq and Afghanistan and so on and so forth. They've all basically disappeared. And I think a lot of the media agenda nowadays in the West is driven by the newsroom rather than by the journalists in the field, either because there are no journalists in the field or because there are few of them, and most of it is determined by the newsrooms in the power centers, which happens to be London, New York, Paris, and so on and so forth. And in those power centers, the, 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 the newsrooms are defined and, and driven by what they read in the London Times or the New York Times, and by they watch on Fox and Sky, rather than by what actually is happening on the ground. So they are editorially driven rather than driven by the actual facts of what goes on in places like Israel-Palestine. Marwan, can you talk a bit about what you foresee the Israeli objectives may be in this forthcoming operation? The Israeli military is currently bombing Gaza, and they've said that they plan to undertake a ground invasion of the territory, which the estimates say could start within the next 24 to 48 hours, according to U.S. sources. Some have suggested that they may be planning to reoccupy Gaza to um, govern it in the manner of the West Bank. Others have suggested more extremely that perhaps the goal may be to expel the population to Egypt, to the Rafah crossing. What's realistic and what do you think that the Israelis may be thinking of the end goal will be of this operation which is getting started at the moment? To my mind, the way I'm reading it and the way I've read uh, Netanyahu's uh, press conference the other day is that uh, they're sort of uh, building it up as they go along. I think most of it came the day after, right? When, you know, the Israelis, of course, were totally shaken uh, with their pants down and they, they tried to recover, you know, within hours. 
But after they were uh, completely humiliated, I think they tried to regain the initiative and apparently they started thinking, what do we do now? And here, of course, the first reaction is, as you just stated correctly, is that there will be retaliation, pounding of Gaza, you know, crippling the Palestinians, uh, of course, much, much more than they did in 2014 or 2021, really this time trying to make it hurt more than ever, right? And yes, apparently preparing for a ground invasion with recalling 350 reservists and, and so on and so forth. So all of that aspect of it is correct. But I think, you know, uh, from, from my, uh, you know, uh, understanding of history, then a number of factors start playing in. First of all, how do you turn this crisis into opportunity? Uh, and how could this crisis serve me, Netanyahu, or the fanatics in his governments, us personally, politically, and so on? And I think for Netanyahu, who's been indicted uh, on corruption charges, as we all know, and who is responsible for the total intelligence and military screw-up that Israel went through over the weekend, Black Saturday is Netanyahu's Black Saturday, and as far as Israel is concerned, and the commissions are going to start when the war stops. So for Netanyahu, the longer the war is, the more delayed accountability is, and the more delayed that he's going to be held responsible, not just for his corruption, but for his actual political crimes against the Israelis by allowing this to happen when he boasted nonstop of Israel's incredible capabilities in, in cyber and in, in uh, intelligence and in this, that, and the other thing. And the way Israel was attacked was even more humiliating than 1973. That was 50 years ago when Israel was surprised in the October war. Well, 50 years later, you would expect something different from Israel, now the strongest, most powerful, most sophisticated uh, country in the region. So I think there is a vested interest for Netanyahu and his government to prolong this war. Three, I think the fascists and the fanatics in his government, namely Ben Gvir and Smotrich, the Minister of Security and Minister of Finance, have other ideas, even to that of Netanyahu. They want to see the Palestinian Authority destroyed. They want to see the Israeli army go back to the entire cities and refugee camps of the West Bank. They want to see settlement multiply, illegal settlement, Jewish settlements multiply. And they want to see squeezing out of the Palestinians of the West Bank happily, you know, slowly but surely. Because they believe historic Palestine is the greater land of Israel and they have God's right to it. And hence the entire uh, arrangements post-Oslo of the Palestinian Authority is not acceptable to them. And I think they are the ones who are gaining momentum in the Israeli politics and in the Israeli government. Four, I would say the following, in terms of turning a crisis into opportunity. As you, Murtaza, have written over the past three decades, that Netanyahu has always had this wet dream, if I could use that expression, about attacking Iran. has always demonized Iran since 1992 and before he became first prime minister in 1996, always predicting every other year that Iran is going to have nuclear power in two years, three years. Of course, it never happened. But he always obsessed about Iran and and its assets and clients in the region, including the Al-Jihad, Hezbollah, and so on and so forth. And I think it is a chance today for Netanyahu to, to expand the war because with 900 plus Israeli dead 
with unconditional support uh, by the United States and and uh, and European powers, basically telling him do what it takes as long as it takes. With the United States, after a conversation between Netanyahu and uh, President Biden, dispatching its uh, aircraft carrier, the Ford, along with a number of uh, uh, destroyers uh, into the Eastern Mediterranean, certainly it's not because Israel wants to bomb Gaza or it needs help with bombing Gaza or it will ever accept any American troops on Israeli soil because it never did and never will, right? Certainly the goal of all of this is to turn this crisis into opportunity to widen the war with the help of the United States and the unconditional support of uh, Western powers to Lebanon, to Syria, and perhaps to Iran. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We said a lot uh, over the years of the Trump administration that, you know, while everyone was focusing on sort of Russiagate, um, there, there was a, a, a very clear collusion scandal uh, playing out that was not even really thinly veiled. It was just playing out in open. And that was the Trump administration's collusion with a number of other nations to drive the world toward a war with Iran. And, and certainly, you know, Netanyahu knew how to play his cards uh, uh, with with Donald Trump, and then you had Joe Biden coming into power, and Murtaza wrote about this as well. Um, and then continuing on with the sort of farcical Abraham Accords of the of the Trump era, keeping the U.S. embassy in a very provocative way, where where it's now going to be um, situated, and and Biden himself has a very very long history of you know he'll say he's been pro Israel, but support for Israel at its most violent. Uh, most bloody, going back decades. Um, in fact, Joe Biden, early on in his political career, even shocked some Israelis uh, with how much of a defense he put up for Israeli war crimes. So, you know, the 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 continuity of U.S. Uh, policy, unfortunately, is quite clear from Trump to to Biden. But you wrote this piece uh, for uh, for Al Jazeera um, over the weekend, uh, and the. Title was Netanyahu is drawing the U.S. into war with Iran. I, I want you to expand on that, but but before you do, I, I just wanted to read this quote that a um, a Haaretz 
columnist unearthed uh, just a few days ago where it was um, Netanyahu reportedly saying at a 2019 meeting of his Likud party, and this is the, the quote from a columnist at Haaretz attributed to Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy, to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. It's quite interesting to read this quote. It hasn't been verified by other outlets, but even the Times of Israel is saying that it's consistent with other things that they've heard from Netanyahu at the time. This is supposedly Netanyahu in 2019. U.S. media are now really hyper-focused on what was Iran's role in all of this. Certainly Netanyahu wants to fuel those kinds of stories. You also have Netanyahu's history uh, of of seemingly um, supporting the idea that Hamas should be a dominant political player because it plays into our hands um, and going so far as saying we should be transferring them money. Talk about this complicated sort of potpourri of politics surrounding Netanyahu on Hamas, Iran's uh, role with both Hamas and Hezbollah, and now your point that you think Netanyahu is trying to pull the U.S. into a wider war with Iran. Uh, Over the summer, you know, I had to basically, uh, what's the word, squeeze my nose or something, and read Netanyahu's book, Bibi. It's a monstrosity of some um, 700 and 800 pages. It's just, uh, you know, an apocalyptic guide to arrogance, egoism, and chutzpah, uh, all in one. Uh, And you can tell just how ambitious this guy is and how much he's driven by personal, not patriotic beliefs. And that he is, you know, he is quite extremist. And he is his father's son. And he comes from a family of utter extremists. And that's how he sees the world. And he tries to be slick with his American accent and this and that, and tries to talk to the West with sound bites and cliches and all of that. But in the end of the day, he's not just a hardcore Zionist. He's a populist Zionist who has never been serious uh, about any prospects of diplomacy or peace with the Palestinians. And he just lies to his teeth, like the French president and the American president and much of the Israeli public have recognized throughout that he is just a pathological liar. So there's nothing he could say to be trusted. But on the question of Hamas and Fatah, the historian Rashid Khalidi uh, also have written in uh, the Journal of Palestine Studies uh, some years ago about the um, about the controversial history of Israel in relation to Hamas uh, and why Israel tried in the early 1980s to support Hamas against Fatah. So there's a long history, imperial history, of divide and rule. And you would expect that, right? Nothing surprises me there, right? I mean, what else would you expect from the Israelis than to divide the Palestinians? I mean, it's actually... It works for their interest if they don't want a viable Palestinian state next door, right? If you want them to be, if they want them to be preoccupied with one another, that's what they do. Second, with the help of the United States, according to a large expose in uh, one of those uh, American publications that hopefully will come to mind now, uh, clearly there was an attempt to, in 2006 to create a civil war among the Palestinians, and they succeeded by bringing the Muhammad Dahlan, the head of security in Gaza, against Fatah and so on and so forth, and really create the space for a basically a civil war among brothers in, in Gaza Strip, leading to two entities, one in the West Bank 
and one in Gaza, one controlled under Fatah and the other controlled by Hamas. And since then, the Israelis and their supporters uh, have tried to uh, continue the, the, the divide and deepen the divide between the two. In fact, I remember clearly a few years ago, uh, it was almost uh, comical to read Martin Endick, a former uh, you know, national security advisor in the Middle East and former U.S. ambassador to Israel, recommend to the Hamas in Gaza to declare their own state in Gaza. Their own state in Gaza. That's one big refugee camp, you know, smaller than Brooklyn, right? And they wanted them to declare. Why? Because it's part of the idea of divide and rule and, and just, you know, try and as much as possible to divide the Palestinians. So that certainly has been the case for the Israelis, except I think in this very particular case of the last two, three years, the Israelis became so arrogant that they thought they were actually now succeeding in both containing Fatah and Abbas and kind of uh, conspiring in a way that, uh, you know, they can uh, uh, trick Hamas into separating from al-Jihad al-Islami as it happened to 2021, when every day as I was covering the war, Israelis were saying, no, no, we agree with Hamas that this is only a problem between us al-Jihad as they were pounding Gaza. Clearly, Hamas has its own agenda and its own timing, and it wasn't tricked by Netanyahu. If anything, it used Israel's arrogance against it by hitting it in a new and gruesome way where it hurts most. And and on the issue of Iran, you're you're asserting that it seems to you as though the part of the game here with Netanyahu is to pull the U.S. into a wider war. There's an increased focus now. Uh, the big piece in the um, Wall Street Journal, big piece in the uh, Washington Post, um, starting to say, "Look, Iran may well be behind all of this. How did they get all of those weapons in there? We know that Iran has a long history of supporting uh, both Hamas and and Hezbollah. I mean, it it does seem like you have uh, this sort of whiplash again, where there's lingering in the background, anonymous officials whispering about Iran. Uh, you know, back in two thousand three. I had uh, relations to the International Herald Tribune, which later became the New York Times International. And I had the chance to write three articles uh, on the eve of the war and during the war, so basically saying this war is going to really backfire big time. This is hubris at its worst for the United States. Of course, these articles would not be published in the United States itself, but only be published outside. In that time, uh, I was a minority voice among hundreds of columnists that were basically building the case for war against Iraq. You know, weapons of mass instructions and this and that and the other thing, right? Saddam being the new Hitler and all of that. All of these arguments now are slowly but surely are being built up against Iran. Now, they were already being built up against Iran before, but sort of the Obama administration dismissed them and forged a nuclear deal with Iran. But now most of the arguments that we've heard against Iraq and Saddam Hussein now, of course, are being used against the clerics in, in, in charge in Tehran about Iran being a destabilizing force in the Middle East, building the nuclear bomb, a threat to Israel, a threat to American interest, a threat to uh, America's allies in the region, uh, you know, spreading chaos in the Middle East, a fundamentalist uh, autocratic government, and so on and so forth. All the arguments that were used against Saddam Hussein and worse are now used against Iran. And I already in the last 48 hours, aside from before uh, the war started, you can see how the case for war is building up. And it's, it's amazing that the article that was published in the Wall Street Journal 
was based on such flimsiness. It is incredible that it would pass through, uh, you know, the journal and become a thing that we ha- all had to quote about Iran's Iranian officials meeting with uh, Hamas officials and militants and Hezbollah militants in Beirut, two long meetings over several months, preparing and planning and orchestrating the war in Gaza or the or the, the, the Gaza attack on, on the Hamas attack on Israel. And in fact, the Iranians deciding when the time was to pull the trigger. That Wall Street Journal was based on flimsy reporting on uh, unnamed sources uh, in Lebanon, right? But it passed and everyone else started quoting it, except that the correspondent who apparently got those quoted was dismissed from Reuters years before because of her unprofessional and you know fantastical kind of reporting. That's just the Wall Street Journal. Just to clarify and give specifics to what uh, you're talking about there, Marwan, the main reporter on this uh, Wall Street Journal uh, story uh, was the subject then of some tweets from her former editor at Reuters, um, Andrew McGregor Marshall. And he tweeted on October 9th, the main reporter on this story has a history of dishonesty and inventing stories. I fired her from Reuters in 2008 for this reason. I'm surprised that the Wall Street Journal has hired her and is publishing her stories that are clearly bogus. He later then added um, that uh, she would have been fired, but she was allowed to resign first. Just want to clarify in fairness that that is the specific case that you're talking about here, Marwan. But on the spectrum of Israel and the United States, the neoconservatives that basically built the case for the war against Iraq are now, and you go back to the uh, you know the various sources in, in the United States, and you see their writing now everywhere, right? And the same guys, right? And the same pro-Israelis who also uh, you know built the case against Iraq and Saddam Hussein are now building the case against Iran and Khamenei and so on and so forth. Except that there's a major difference. Iraq 2003 is not Iran 2023. Iran 2023 is a totally different country in terms of size, in terms of capacity, in terms of assets and interests, in terms of its uh, uh, ability to really set the region on fire. The clerics in Iran are not Saddam Hussein. And if the United States screwed up big time in 2003, and basically lost its so-called, you know, superpower status, the one and only power in the world, the benevolent empire and all of that. If it lost most of that, and now we're having more and more of sort of what so-called multipolar world, well, a war against Iran, you know, driven or manufactured or, or incited to by Israel, as the gullible Biden administrations and its, you know, vice-reading security, national security team, start building up that case also for American deployment in the Eastern Mediterranean, one that could start a third world war. If that's the situation we have, I think a lot of unintended consequences even before the war could start unraveling, meaning we could have, you know, some of the stuff that's happening now in South Lebanon or some of the stuff that could happen tomorrow in Syria trigger a wider regional war and America being drawn into this sort of a war that really will leave everyone burnt. Marwan, if the war expands in the way you described, uh, theoretically, you could probably see Hezbollah attacking Israel from the north, 
And the Iranians have said in the past that they would attack Israel through Syria as well too. And it would be what's known as a multi-front war. And obviously Israel is very stretched because it was deploying troops in the West Bank to uh, defend settlers there and so forth, which is what led to uh, and contributed to this emergence of an attack from Gaza. What would that look like for Israel? Is that actually a conflict that they're able to prevail in? It seems like if that is Netanyahu's plan to provoke a larger conflict, is that a conflict? What would it look like for the region? And would the Israeli military, from your estimation, be actually able to sustain multiple fronts in such a such a case? Okay, so to clarify, I think there are two conflicts uh, could be going on. There are only one conflict is happening, but that's an asymmetrical conflict, an asymmetrical warfare against Gaza, against Gaza factions, Hamas or Jihad and so on and so forth. And I think it will take a long time to explain the difference between asymmetrical warfare. Of course, uh, Jeremy knows all about this and worked on it. But just to be clear, this is not a conventional war. And even when they talk about, we continuously talk about war, what's happening in the last 40 hours is Israel pounding Gaza mercilessly, indiscriminately, and so on and so forth. And of course, it's not its Air Force and its uh, rockets are not going to face that much of a resistance, right? I mean, every once in a while, Hamas might shoot a few rockets in the air, and usually they are shut down by Israel's own uh, defense system. But it's not war, and it's not even war in the terms of, like, dissymmetry. I'm not just talking about imbalance of forces, because that's dissymmetry, right? Iraq and the United States, that war was dissymmetrical, meaning one was hugely powerful and the other was quite weak, and the United States was, would be able to decimate the Republican guards and Saddam Hussein's forces within days, right? But the real asymmetrical warfare started after that, right? And America was basically, uh, uh, you know, fell uh, um, prey to the uh, asymmetrical warfare, the resistance, the guerrilla, and so on and so forth within Iraq after that. And mission accomplished became mission unaccomplished, and it, in fact, became mission hell uh, after that. I think the same thing that we're talking here, there is there is uh, the issue of, of war against Iran, and there is all these asymmetrical conflicts that could spring out of it with Hezbollah, Hamas, and uh, Iranian assets in Syria and Iraq and, and all of that. There's a, but before we get to the you know wider war thing, uh, let me just just be precise about a few things. Netanyahu always blustered about uh, at least the last decade about the war against Iran, but he would have never carried any such war as Israel against Iran because that's a risk he cannot take. He's not that kind of a wartime president, by the way. I mean, of everything we know, despite all his blusters, he's more of a more of a Reagan than he is of a Bush meaning he would bluster and talk about the evil uh, Iran, like Reagan talked about the evil Soviet Union, but he would not get involved in actual war with Iran, uh, right? He would leave that to the United States, for example, against Iraq. But, but now there is an opportunity whereby if he can draw the United States in, then we are talking about a wider war. He is not going to engage Iran in a wider war on and in himself, right, as Israel. That's not going to work. He's not going to be able to handle it. Certainly not with Iranian's assets in Lebanon and Palestine and all of that, as it were, the way they're called. So I think the idea would be to draw the United States in. Without the United States support, direct support, uh, there's going to be no conflict in Iran. Two, I think the idea that Biden did not send you know, a few Patriot missiles or more and more ammunition to Israel, but sent this, this huge naval strike force 
it's almost like the pivot to Asia. Right? The pivot to Asia was adding one more strike force like this one. That was the pivot to Asia back during the Obama administration, right? So now we have a pivot to the Eastern Mediterranean with this one big strike force that is able really to get involved in the bombings in Syria and Iran and so on and so forth. Now, will Biden do that? Well, Biden is the one who boasted of being the man who ended the forever wars, right? And being able to take in the humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan. But as it were for the benevolent empire, it never actually withdraws from the world. It simply redeploys in the world as it does redeploy in the Middle East. So now there are tens of thousands of American forces in the Middle East, none of them in Israel, by the way, tens of thousands of American forces in the Middle East, redeployed in various bases and so on and so forth, involved in a couple of conflicts like Syria, uh, Libya, and other places, right? So the idea is that they are there anyway. The Biden said he wouldn't do it, but in fact, he redeployed in the area. And now he is slowly but surely getting drawn in by giving Netanyahu carte blanche green light to do whatever uh, whatever, whatever needs to be done as long as it needs to be done. That could only give Netanyahu the power then to draw the United States more and more into conflict because if it does really uh, heats up on the southern border uh, and the northern border with Lebanon and Lebanon does come into the equation and then Iran starts moving other assets in Syria and so on and so forth, then we actually could start talking about wider war, and the United States would not be able to sit idly by, uh, right? So there are these. And then one last uh, comment on that, just to be clear. I don't think this has to be, you know, jumping on the war bank immediately. Already Israel has called 3,000, 50,000 reserves. That's certainly not to fight a war in, in Gaza. Not to fight a war. They doesn't need that. Not even on two fronts, Gaza and Lebanon. It doesn't need 350,000 reserves, right? This is only needed in case of a wider war. So there is that. Two, I think one of the most important cases, one of the most important factors for Israel and Netanyahu in particular, once the dust settles from the bombing and the pounding of Gaza, is what to do about what they call the hostages or the captives, the Israeli soldiers and civilians being held in Gaza. That's the biggest issue for Israel and for the Israeli government. There's something sensitive for the Israeli public opinion, you know, de facto or by design. I'm not going to get into that, but Israelis cannot handle the idea that more than 100 of their own people, soldiers and civilians, are held by Hamas captives. In the we know from history of Gerard Shalit, the prisoner held in Gaza, that nothing happened to him, right? It's not like he's going to be tortured or, or whatever. And yet, Israelis cannot handle this government's not going to be handled. So I think the first thing on the mind of Israelis and the United States when the dust settles on the bombing of Gaza is what to do about the Israeli uh, captives there. And I think now they all know that Egypt does not have leverage on Hamas and Jihad. Neither do any of the surrounding Arab countries. And apparently, only Iran has leverage with Hamas and Jihad to release hostages. So I would say the first order of business for the Israelis and the Americans would be, perhaps behind the scenes, is to tell Iran, look, either you risk a wider conflict here, or you're going to have to tell your people in Gaza, as it were, to release the hostages, to release the captives, and so on and so forth. If Iran behaves indifferently, or insists that it has absolutely nothing to do with this, as it has been claiming, then I think that will leave the door open 
for further escalation in the region. Now, this could all be, by the way, my own you know fantastical thinking, right? What do I know? I'm just reading a bit of history, right? What happened in 2003, just this very most recent case, when I saw the exact same thing of building up the case for war on flimsy or, or, or misinformation about, you know, threats and, and autocracies and, and, uh, and, uh, and weapons of mass destruction. And we've seen what happened over the past 20 years. I just hope and wish that this does not repeat itself the next 20 years. We're going to have to leave it there, Marwan. We're out of time, but um, always fascinating to read your analysis. And thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show to offer your analysis with us here on Intercepted. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your patience listening. That was Marwan Bashara. He's an author and the senior political analyst at Al Jazeera. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Oliveras is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Legal review by David Brelo. And this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating or review whenever you find our podcasts. It helps other listeners to find us as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussein.